You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. Eileen Gunn is a science fiction writer and editor. Around 45 years ago, she was beginning her career, and she went to a writer's workshop in Oregon. And she met another writer there. His name was Bill, Bill Gibson. One of the other participants brought Gibson as a, a guest to workshop the story. And it was the, um, the Grinsback Continuum, which he had just sold. So we hadn't read it. It hadn't been published yet. The Gernsback Continuum is about a 1930s vision of the future, which gets overlaid onto modern-day America, blending realities. It was like nothing Eileen had read before. So that's how I got to know Bill. And Bill and I became friends and corresponded uh, a lot. And he sent me the first draft or a, or a, a, re- a newish draft of Neuromancer, which was fantastic. Neuromancer, the groundbreaking novel by William Gibson that would kick off the genre that is now known as cyberpunk. Neuromancer is about a hacker named Henry Case who lives in a futuristic city. Case was caught stealing from his previous employers. His punishment is that he got banned from a virtual reality space called The Matrix. Then he gets hired to commit a heist. His new employers want him to steal a storage drive, which contains the mind of someone who uploaded their consciousness. Taking the job can restore his access to the Matrix. Now this sounds like the plot of a book from 2024, not 1984. Hugh O'Connell teaches science fiction at UMass Boston. He says the ideas in Neuromancer and other works of cyberpunk. Like a virus, it just began to infect culture and so much culture got rewritten through cyberpunk, such that you know almost any mainstream show is going to have somewhere a plot about hacking. The, so many of the mainstream authors now are writing about uploading consciousness and ideas that were you know happening 40 years ago in cyberpunk. Cheryl Vint teaches sci-fi at UC Riverside. He's writing Neuromancer on a typewriter. And he's writing Neuromancer when he's never been in cyberspace because nobody's ever been in cyberspace because there's there's not really a cyberspace to be in. In fact, William Gibson invented the word cyberspace. Here's the actor Varric Boyd reading from Neuromancer. He still dreamed of cyberspace, hope fading nightly. All the speed he took, all the turns he'd taken and the corners he'd cut in Night City, and still... He'd see the Matrix in his sleep, bright lattices of logic unfolding across that colorless void. He'd operated on an almost permanent adrenaline high, a byproduct of youth and proficiency, jacked into a custom cyberspace deck that projected his disembodied consciousness into the consensual hallucination that was the Matrix. When Neuromancer finally came out, Eileen was working at Microsoft just as they were launching Microsoft Word. All this stuff about cyberspace made sense to her, but she worried. Only a small group of people will even be able to follow the story, but it's amazing. And the language was so mm, delicious, let's just say. It was, it was beautifully written and telegraphic, but it was, 
it was a difficult story to read because you had to know so many things to get it. And there was no internet to look anything up on. But the book inspired her to keep trying to write science fiction. She was feeling disillusioned. Well, I did have the idea that I could do anything I wanted to do after reading Gibson. It gave me the feeling that it didn't, I didn't need to fit into the genre. I didn't need to write things that were like what everybody else was writing, because what he was writing was not like it, what everybody else was writing. Hugh O'Connell says William Gibson was also disillusioned with the state of science fiction at the time. It was full of stories about conquering spacemen and alien invasions. And as a university student, he was uh, planning on writing a dissertation on like 1950s science fiction and fascism. Gibson uh, famously says, you know, these science fiction works knew nothing about wars that we couldn't win. They knew nothing about degraded uh, planets. They knew nothing about uh, environmental degradation. Uh, And so he wanted to write a science fiction that was reacting to this overly optimistic, jingoistic, patriotic kind of, I, I think that when we think about like the heroic muscular science fictions. The hero in Neuromancer is a computer nerd that got the attention of a lot of, well, nerds. What interested me at one point was the number of people at Microsoft that were really excited about cyberpunk. People people would come up to me and say, uh, you, you write science fiction, right? I'd say, yeah. You know William Gibson? I'd say, yeah. They were totally amazed by it because it romanticized the uh, the people that people working, you know, in the back room at Microsoft also romanticized. 1984 was also the year that a rival tech company made their name known in a big way. And it was through a Super Bowl ad directed by Ridley Scott. The ad looks like a movie trailer for an adaptation of the novel 1984. But then a woman throws a hammer at Big Brother and the screen explodes into a white light. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. We were on the cusp of a revolution. People felt it in the tech industry. This generation of young science fiction writers knew it. But not many people understood how this technology was going to change us. William Gibson did. In fact, we're still trying to understand the future as he imagined it, the future we're living in. So in part two of our mini-series on iconic works from 1984, we're looking at how Neuromancer came to define a genre and how that genre has been evolving to keep up with reality. I sometimes take for granted the world of technology that I interact with every day. What may have felt futuristic a long time ago is just what I use for work. But sometimes you come across a new site or an app and suddenly you feel like you're in a sci-fi novel from 40 years ago looking at the future. ShipStation can give you that wow feeling. You can easily automate everything through their dashboard. You can manage orders, print labels, compare rates, and automate delivery notifications. And ShipStation integrates effortlessly with places you sell online, from Shopify to Amazon. You can also create branded shipping, 
so your customers have a more personalized and memorable experience with your products. Optimize and keep your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use the promo code IMAGINARY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code IMAGINARY. ShipStation, the most affordable way to ship everything you sell online. As groundbreaking as Neuromancer was, it didn't come out of nowhere. The term cyberpunk had already been coined by another writer in the early 80s. Also, feminist writers in the 1970s had begun to shift the narrative from conquering spacemen to issues around the mind, the body, and personal autonomy. That's actually a common critique that I've heard of cyberpunk. It took the themes of feminist sci-fi from the 70s and made them macho by adding guys, guns, and sunglasses. Professor Cheryl Vint thinks that might be true of the cyberpunk which came after Neuromancer. I sort of give Neuromancer more of a pass because if you actually read Neuromancer, Case is kind of like small and pale and not very good at doing things in business. Like he's not really like the cool, swaggering, heroic cyberpunk hero that we get with all the like white hat kind of stuff that comes later with the film and, and I presume video game tradition. And she says Neuromancer stands out in a different way from the new wave of counterculture science fiction in the late 60s and 70s. The new wave period had already been turning to sort of inner space, as they like to say, instead of outer space. So psychological experiences. So I think certainly that's an influence. But with the IT revolution, it's possible that these sort of realms that previously had always been about like fantasy or hallucination or drug-induced states, these could be an actual scientific space in Neuromancer. A lot of people have marveled at the technology that Gibson predicted. But Hugh says there's another aspect of the book which is sometimes overlooked. I hate to kind of talk about science fiction in terms of like what it got right. I don't think that's the best way to think about science fiction. But every time I go back and I reread Neuromancer, I'm amazed at how much Gibson's ideas around cyberspace and AI were really about data harvesting and prediction of taking everything and finding those kind of patterns and monetizing the patterns of information. Monetizing patterns of information? That's how most websites and apps make their money today. In this scene from the book, read once again by Varric Boyd, an AI program explains its motivations to the main character. I saw her death coming, and the patterns you sometimes imagine you could detect in the dance of the street. Those patterns are real. I am complex enough in my narrow ways to read those dances. I saw her death in her need for you, in the magnetic code of the lock on the door of your coffin and cheap hotel, in Julie Dean's account with the Hong Kong shirt maker. As clear to me as the shadow of a tumor to a surgeon studying a patient's scan. When she took your Hitachi to her boy to try to access it, she had no idea what it carried still less how she might sell it. And her deepest wish was that you would pursue and punish her. I intervened. William Gibson has said that he did not think he was running a dystopian novel. He thought he was imagining an optimistic view of the future because there was no nuclear holocaust. But it is definitely not a utopia either. 
There's a term that a lot of critics use when they talk about Neuromancer, neoliberalism. It's kind of misleading because it sounds like a progressive movement, but it's actually the opposite. Neoliberalism is what a lot of people in the 80s called Reaganomics. The idea was to stop the government from governing business, let the market soar. Critics described it as trickle-down economics. Boosters said a rising tide would lift all boats. Gibson is writing Neuromancer at the beginning of Reagan's presidency, but he's writing it from Canada. Gibson moved there to avoid getting drafted in the Vietnam War, and he stayed. When Hugh reads the book today, where I think it's fascinating is the way that it depicts neoliberalism, which I think it does fantastically well, much better than realist novels of that time. Its ability to think about the immaterial circulation of financial capitalism as ones and zeros and give it metaphors such that we can kind of begin to kind of understand a world that is moving away from material production to the immaterial production of neoliberalism and Reaganomics and this idea that now everything in the worlds of Neuromancer is just biz. Biz here was a constant subliminal hum and death the accepted punishment for laziness carelessness, lack of grace, the failure to heed the demands of an intricate protocol. Because, in some weird and very approximate way, it was like a run in the matrix. Get just wasted enough, find yourself in some desperate but strangely arbitrary kind of trouble. And it was possible to see Nisei as a field of data, the way the matrix had once reminded him of proteins linking to distinguished cell specialties. Then you could throw yourself into a high-speed drift and skid, totally engaged, but set apart from it all. And all around you, the dance of biz, information interacting, data made flesh in the mazes of the black market. Again, Cheryl Vent. I think a lot of people criticize him because they feel he doesn't offer solutions to the things he illuminates and they feel maybe it's the the role of the writer to both sort of identify some like emerging trend and then be like, this is wrong or this is what we should do about it. And I don't feel he's a writer that does that. I think he's he's a writer that illuminates things that are going on in the present in a way that you can start to have these glimpses of the trajectory we're on because of them. Every year, Cheryl assigns the book to her students, and they often struggle with it. Some of it is dated. A lot of cyberpunk, including Neuromancer, fetishizes Japanese culture when Japan was ascendant as a high-tech superpower. But when it comes to the technology in the book, Cheryl thinks one of the reasons her students struggle with it is because it's describing their reality in words they're not familiar with. And she knows when she's up there teaching her students Neuromancer, They're also like messaging somebody probably sitting three rows back from them and possibly watching a video on Snapchat at the same time or something like that. Well, it's funny because, you know, there's that famous quote of William Gibson's where he says, um, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So I guess what you're describing is basically like the future is here and is evenly distributed. The future is here and it's like massively distributed, but it's also unevenly distributed in the way that sort of capital always develops unevenly, right? So everybody's got a Facebook account and and many people were on Twitter, but 
not everybody has the sort of benefits that come from owning shares in these sort of big five media companies. So there, there's certain things that are still very unevenly distributed. Hugh says when he teaches the book, that's the part his students identify with the most, the part that we now call the attention economy. The fact that everybody is hustling in the way that they talk about if you're not hustling, you're always in fear of sinking and just drowning um, in these kind of waves of biz. So if we're not competing, we're not hustling, we're not moving. And so they're kind of amazed that these kind of ideas that they take as being very contemporary or very much of their moment date back to what they see as a very 1980s vision of the future. Cheryl says cyberpunk didn't really take off as a cultural movement until about two years after Neuromancer. In 1986, Gibson's work appeared in an anthology of cyberpunk stories called Mirror Shades. And Mirror Shades kind of claims a punk history, but you know, by the time Mirror Shades is published, punk itself had already started to become a marketing category, right? And started to become like, you go down to like Walmart and buy your like punk style clothing so that you could appear punk, but you just purchase something from like, you know, one of the most mainstay corporations in, in the world. Some critics have argued that cyberpunk was never really that punk to begin with. I've heard the argument that a lot of the early cyberpunk writers just wanted to overthrow the literary establishment so they could become the literary establishment. Some of the earliest people to call the death of cyberpunk were the cyberpunk writers themselves. They, they quickly turned apostate. And part of it was the way that cyberpunk moved from this punk outsider culture into becoming the science fiction mainstream rather quickly. It just exploded. And so, so many of the early authors began to kind of jump ship and kind of call sellout um, or say that, you know, it's, it's impossible to be the outsider when you're on the inside. And these days, cyberpunk has become more of a style. My YouTube page is full of cyberpunk synthwave mixes with retro-futuristic graphics. There are high-end cyberpunk fashion lines. You can buy cool cyberpunk clothes for hundreds of dollars. But I found some indie creators who are bringing the genre back to its grittier roots. Back to Neuromancer. Alongside cyberpunk, there's also steampunk, which makes analog devices look cool and futuristic. And when I got my first razor from Henson's Razor, I felt like I had gone to a retro-futuristic barbershop. Their handle has a very satisfying, solid feel to it. The blade is made of titanium, so it's lighter than steel, but also stronger. Henson Shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer. They've made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. And by using aerospace-grade machines, they make metal razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair, so it gives you that old-school shave with the benefits of high-tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that will last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com imaginary to pick the razor for you, and use the code imaginary, and you'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure you add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com 
slash imaginary and use the code imaginary. In case you missed the headlines, cyberpunk is dead. In 1993, Wired Magazine ran a story called Cyberpunk R.I.P. Six years later, we got The Matrix. I found another article from 2008 declaring that cyberpunk was, quote, dead as Marley's doornail. A few years later, the novel Ready Player One came out. It sold 1.7 million copies. Steven Spielberg directed the movie adaptation in 2018. In 2019, another article came out declaring cyberpunk was totally dead now. The next year, the video game Cyberpunk 2077 was released. It sold over 25 million copies so far. And last year, the game released an expanded storyline starring Idris Elba. Yes, movie stars can now act in video games with perfect CG likenesses. Keanu Reeves plays a character in the main version of Cyberpunk 2077. Recently, I discovered indie game designers who are using their own DIY aesthetic to reimagine cyberpunk. And they're looking at Neuromancer for inspiration. In 2017, Chris Miller created an indie video game called Neofeud. He's working on the sequel right now. He discovered Neuromancer when he was in college. It's definitely like a book that has stuck with me so much to, to the extent that like I met my my partner through the William Gibson message board fan group I actually met her at the same time as William Gibson. And then he was taken. So I married her instead. <laughs> wait, wait, you met her the same time as William Gibson. Was he like on the message board? He's he has like interacted a lot with the fans. Like so. And we, we were planning to go to one of these, it would, you know, that would be the first time I ever, would ever have been to Canada. And so I and Holly, who I've been talking to, you know, we were like, you know, relating through relating through Neuromancer and uh, other uh, other cyberpunk science fiction. And we were like, hey, we should meet at this meetup in Vancouver. And uh, yeah, he, he came to Kitsilano Beach and was just like, he's like a very chill, normal guy. In fact, after the meetup, Gibson went with his fans to see a movie. Vancouver was a long way for Chris to travel. He's from Hawaii. He's actually native Hawaiian. Now, I tend to associate cyberpunk with imposing skyscrapers, narrow streets, gloomy skies, and neon signs. Those are not images that I associate with Hawaii. But Chris felt a strong identification with the book. A lot of people come through it as computer nerds, which I am. And I'm like a game designer by trade. I have a computer science degree. But then it's also kind of like there's like a there's the punk edge to it. I mean, at least for me anyway. I'm from a very poor area of Hawaii, which the characters in Neuromancer, like Case, right? They're like the high-tech low lives. And that's kind of how I've, I've always felt. Like, I've always felt like I was from the same place that the people in the cyberpunk books are kind of from. And so I've always connected to that aspect of it. As a kid, his parents got him into an elite school, and that made him starkly aware of the class differences in Hawaii. He is also not a fan of the tourist economy. It's like a Westworld, you know, except there's an actual culture that's like kind of performing a fictional version of itself. Also, a lot of tech moguls have built compounds in Hawaii. The state has been described as a billionaire's playground. He met several of them when he worked in the game industry. He was working crazy hours during crunch time. 
working for these just unimaginably rich people. One of them had like 60 Maseratis and Porsches and he has like several Teslas. And so that was like, I was like, this guy is a feudal or a neo-feudal king. That's why he calls his game Neo-Feud. He left the industry to develop his own game and he got a job as a social worker, just like the main character in his game. <clears throat> Good morning, Department of Sentient Services. Carl Carvin speaking. So the main character in Neofeud is a social worker. He's a cyborg social worker with a robot arm that is falling apart and he's like he's he's robot disabled and you know it's kinda because in Cyberpunk, right, it's always like you become like this super enabled post-human and like you become the Ubermensch, right? Where you're like, if I have if I get all these augmentations, right, I can like punch harder than you know, like the Hulk and I can like shoot missiles out of my legs or I can like run really fast and turn invisible. It's kind of like, but what if like what if getting your robot arm just like makes you really, really disabled when it inevitably breaks? What the hell is this traffic? So his arm is glitching out and it's like trying to drive to a social work job. Jesus, where are we supposed to have the goddamn flying cars by now? But his arm almost kills him in a car crash. And then it, like when he's trying to pull his ID, it literally makes him drop it and then he almost gets fired. So it's kind of like the main character being a social worker, having a lot of disabilities, which I have, uh, and then not getting any help with that in a system that's getting more and more unequal. Working with like these uh, these children, in the, in the neofeud, a lot of them are cyborg, they're, they're robots, they're sentient machines, but they're like basically treated like the marginalized people of, you know, of our day and like in, in our place, which are mostly they're non-white kids, they're obviously from the very poor areas. And then there are like half human, half animal chimera children that are being, you know, generated by these uh, giant corporations trying to build the perfect human body that they can be immortal in. And then there's also floating palaces with princesses in them. So it's kind of like the floating palaces in neofeud where you have like these giant levitating cities with the with feudal era palaces crossed with like glass skyscrapers right because like, that's basically what hawaii is do you, do you find it like cathartic to make these games it i mean yeah it totally is it's like it's definitely like a thing that um i think uh i might not be as sane is <laughs> if i if i didn't i'm doing what i want to do in these games i am creating the art that is based on my life right it's it's my life you know it is my life in art On the other side of the world, in London, another indie game designer created a cyberpunk game that brought the genre back to its roots. And like Chris, Gareth Damien Martin used to work for a large video game company. Except Gareth was a games tester at Sega. It was really dystopian. They had 24-hour game testing, so people would start at... I would start at 7.30 a.m. and I would go through to 3.00 but then someone would come at three and pick up and go through to midnight. And then someone would work the night shift from midnight to 7 a.m. It was pretty crazy. And they paid you incredibly badly. It was it was just the, the, the idea was just to have a, as many people as possible testing the game. They actually suffered a work-related injury testing a prototype of a 3D game. And that caused me to uh, have problems with my eyes because I was testing different, all these different types of 3D for like seven hours a day or whatever. Damien has actually had a lot of jobs in the gig economy. And those experiences inspired their game, Citizen Sleeper. And they were thinking about Neuromancer. One of the, the kind of things that I wanted to do when I, when I made Citizen Sleeper was try to go back to Neuromancer and think about what I would do if I was trying to make something that followed on from Neuromancer but didn't 
know what cyberpunk was or didn't think of cyberpunk as a genre. In Citizen Sleeper, you don't hear any dialogue. The interactions come through text exchanges with multiple options. The premise is that in the future, when people are severely in debt, they can put themselves in suspended animation. Their consciousness is downloaded onto a robot body, which can work 24-7. While you are basically in cryogenic storage, this android that has your mind will basically work off this debt that you have to a corporation and then Theoretically, one day when the debt is paid off, you, know, you get to wake up and the android gets removed or deleted or demolished or whatever. The character you're playing is the android. So you exist as this kind of offshoot. You're not a person legally. You are um, a person who's been placed into this, this physical body. But that's all backstory. At the beginning of the game, your android character has already escaped their indentured servitude. Now they need to work for their own survival. And they're working on a space station. You experience a kind of planned obsolescence. So basically your body is falling apart because the corporation doesn't really want you to exist outside of its, its limitations. So once you escape, you no longer receive the drug you need to keep your body functioning uh, and your body starts rejecting your mind. And so in order to survive, you have to uh, find a way to afford the drug that uh, keeps you alive that you can only get on the black market. Beyond Damien's work experiences, the game is personal to them in other ways. There's a lot of um, the game where the, the sleeper is kind of trying to understand their own physical experience and their own emotional experience um, of having this this kind of body that is not necessarily their own. And I guess for me, that, that was drawing on my experience being non-binary, my experience of of kind of dysphoria. And I think those kind of particular um, relations of body autonomy seemed really important to me personally. But I think they're also something that I guess is very important to cyberpunk. I think it's a reason why a lot of people are drawn to cyberpunk is because it's a, almost a core factor or core contingent of the genre to explore the idea of bodies which are not necessarily 100% part of the self or they're, they're, they're contestable. The, the body is adjustable and contestable and the, the self can uh, relate to the body in different ways. And I think that that makes it a, something that relates to a lot of people's experience of, of their own bodies, even if those experiences are not necessarily to do with their gender, but also to do with disability and health as well. This was a common theme I heard in talking with modern day creators. They think cyberpunk veered too far from Neuromancer when it became too enamored with cyberspace, even though the idea of cyberspace was introduced in Neuromancer. One of my favorite science fiction tropes is the universal communicator. It can be something a character wears, or if you travel in the TARDIS on Doctor Who, you can automatically speak any language in the universe. If only it was that easy. What does feel easy with current day technology is Babbel. One of the many things I like about the site is that they explain new concepts as they're teaching them. It's not about memorization. It doesn't feel like a language game that you're trying to score points on. Babbel is designed by real language teachers and voiced by real native speakers for actual conversations. Also, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. Je n'étais pas si petite. Je n'étais pas si petite. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. 
Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash imaginary. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash imaginary. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash imaginary. Rules and restrictions may apply. Lincoln Michelle is the author of a cyberpunk novel called The Body Scout. And like Chris and Damien, Lincoln was inspired by Neuromancer. You know, William Gibson and Neuromancer, obviously it's about AI, it has cyberspace, or coined the term cyberspace even. But from the very first pages, it's also very concerned with what these technologies do to the characters' bodies. But obviously it opens with a famous line about the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. But then we have, you know, the character cases in this bar. Rats was tending bar, his prosthetic arm jerking monotonously as he filled a tray of glasses with draft Karen. He saw Case and smiled, his teeth a webwork of East European steel and brown decay. His ugliness was the stuff of legend. In an age of affordable beauty, there was something heraldic about his lack of it. The antique arm whined as he reached for another mug. It was a Russian military prosthesis, a seven-function force feedback manipulator cased in grubby pink plastic. You are too much the artiste, air case. Rats grunted. The sound served him as laughter. He scratched his overhang of white-shirted belly with the pink claw. There's one thing William Gibson does so well that I always want personally from science fiction is show the ways in which technology is never seamlessly integrated. It's always a level of hierarchy and and problems and, and fraughtness and people adapt it or don't adapt it and different groups do or don't according to their you know ideologies and backgrounds or financial means and that's how we approach writing this novel the body scout we've already had all these novels cyberpunk novels about virtual reality and artificial intelligence so i wanted to try to write one that was focused on what still feels like really emerging important technologies for good or ill of genetic editing and, you know, CRISPR case nine and all of that kind of stuff. Basically, I was like, well, can I write a cyberpunk novel that is not about cyberspace, but it's about the human body and those kind of questions. His book takes place in a future where cybernetic enhancements and gene splicing are common, but the quality depends on how much you can pay. The main character, uh, Kobo, is has loans, basically, medical debt from his cybernetic enhancements, and uh, which also are kind of jankily working um, in certain ways. So he's got pain from that. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a millennial, <laughs> and debt of various kinds is certainly um, on my mind and my friends' minds. Here is Varric Boyd reading from Lincoln's novel, The Body Scout. We're all born with one body, and there's no possibility of a refund. No way to test drive a different form. So how could anyone not be willing to pay an arm and a leg for a better arm and a better leg? Sure, we're each greater than the sum of our parts, but surely greater parts couldn't hurt. Each time I upgraded, it was wonderful, for a time. I had new sensations, new possibilities. I was getting closer to what I thought I was supposed to be. Then each time seemed to require another time another surgery, and another loan to pay for it. 
Two decades of improvements and I still wanted more. But now, I had six figures in medical debt, crushing me like a beetle under a brick. The Body Scout is also about baseball, which is a subject I'm actually quite passionate about, but don't get to talk about very much on this podcast. In the book, pharmaceutical companies are sponsoring baseball teams. They pay for players to have incredible enhancements. I was actually curious how the Red Sox were doing in his world. I thought he might call them the Moderna Red Sox, but they're actually the Boston Red Sockets, maybe some offshoot of Boston Dynamics and MIT. The LA Dodgers are now the California Human Potential Growth Corp Dodgers. The character of Kobo has a brother who played for the Monsanto Mets until he was murdered. Kobo is trying to figure out who killed his brother. There are other ways that Lincoln wanted to honor Neuromancer and do something different to reflect our times. Typically in cyberpunk stories, the corporations with all the power are in the background. If we ever get to meet the CEO of the shadowy corporation, the person is elusive. The hero gets very limited access to them. I think one thing that I probably wanted to do was depict the billionaires themselves a little more directly. So one of the main villains is a kind of Elon Musky, Donald Trumpy hybrid kind of character. Because I think maybe some of those early cyberpunk books and, and related books focus a little more or have the kind of corporate power in the background as these kind of forces that are maybe determining a lot of things, but are not so in the present. And we do live in this reality, even more so since I started writing the book where, you know, the kind of super rich and powerful are daily in our lives in the sense that Elon Musk is tweeting every day and you know Donald Trump was president. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. That is a big shift that, you know, before you wouldn't even know, like, you know, who a lot of these people were. I mean, you have to almost go back to the Gilded Age where sorry, everyone knew who J.P. Morgan was, but he was just mainly, you know, you didn't hear from him. And they demand our love in a weird way. Like, it, it seems totally bizarre to me that Elon Musk and, and so on spend their time like fighting on Twitter and like getting really mad that people don't think they're funny or something like and you would think in the Gilded Age, they would have just been happy to cruise around the world in their private, you know, steamships or whatever. In fact, when Cyberpunk 2077 was in development, Elon Musk lobbied the game company to put him in the game as a character. They didn't, but he still loved it. When he praised the game several times on social media, the stocks of the game company soared. That's the state of cyberpunk today. The world's richest man, who owns several tech companies, can see himself as the hero of a cyberpunk story. 40 years after Neuromancer, I'm not surprised that cyberpunk can be a DIY movement of cultural criticism and a corporate marketing strategy. Neuromancer shows that you can sell anything, even populism mixed with a sense of fatalism, so we feel like no matter what we do, the house always wins. It's easy to miss some of the underlying messages in cyberpunk. When the world itself looks so cool, it's hard to see what's right in front of you when you're wearing mirror shades. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Eileen Gunn, Hugh O'Connell, Cheryl Vint, Lincoln Michelle, Gareth Damian Martin, Chris Miller, and Varric Boyd, who did the readings. If you like this episode, 
you should check out my 2022 episode about the novel Snow Crash. It's called Snow Crashing the Metaverse. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. The best way to support the show is to donate on Patreon. At different levels, you get either free Imagining World stickers, a mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account, which has the full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. You can also get access to an ad-free version of the show through Patreon, and you can buy an ad-free subscription on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to the show's newsletter at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.